Hi, this is Josh Barrow, and we are back with, well, we're not calling it an emergency episode, uh, but a rapidly produced episode in response to important, urgent, emergent news under emergency circumstances. In any case, here's a new episode of the podcast. This one is partially behind our paywall. Uh, We have some initial thoughts on the indictment that has come down for Donald Trump, the January 6th related indictment, the second federal indictment, third indictment overall. Um, We have general thoughts on that for all of you. Uh, Some of the topics that are in the second half of this episode that is just for paying subscribers, uh, we talk about the identities of all six of the co-conspirators in this document uh, and legal exposure that they might face. We talk about the inclusion of the Capitol riot, which we found a little bit surprising uh, in this indictment. Uh, The former president was not indicted for inciting that crowd, but the riot is still included by prosecutors as an element of the conspiracy to interfere with the election. And then we look forward to the possible trial in this case. We talk about Judge Tanya Chutkin, uh, not a very favorable draw for the president, unlike Judge Eileen Cannon down in Florida, uh, how long this trial could take to start and how long it could take to try once it's on. And finally, we talk about what kind of sentence the former president could face if he is ultimately convicted of the charges here. So if you want to hear that complete conversation, I encourage you right now, stop listening now. Go to SeriousTrouble.show, become a paying subscriber. You can upgrade for $6 a month or $60 a year. You'll get that whole conversation. You won't have to listen to two separate podcasts in order to get the whole thing. And then you'll get every full episode of the show, uh, more than 40 episodes a year. We actually put out almost 50 of them last year. And you'll also be part of the community that is making this whole show possible for Sarah and Ken and me to put out this podcast for you nearly every week. So I hope that you will do that. Stop this tape. Go upgrade. Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. Ken, is this an emergency podcast? It is an emergent podcast. It's an emergent uh, podcast. Josh, I, I'm, I'm respecting your wish that nothing ever be called a, an emergency podcast. But if there were such a thing, Josh, this would be it. Yeah, I mean, literally, on Tuesday afternoon, as we were discussing whether or not we were going to have an episode to tape today, because, you know, first, the way we learned of this is that Trump announced on Truth Social that he would be indicted. Uh, But he also announced that he was going to be indicted in New York on a Tuesday, and he was indicted about nine days after he claimed he would be indicted. So you never know what that means. And then it became clear that the grand jury was going to issue an indictment, but we didn't know whether we would actually get the text of the indictment on this evening. And so I was literally standing about to leave my house uh, to return to New York City. Uh, to catch a ferry boat. And as I was going to walk out of my house with my backpack on, uh, we got the text of the indictment. So I turned around, sent the indictment to my printer. uh, And here we are recording this episode, 8.09 p.m. on Tuesday evening. So uh, maybe it's a podcast under emergency conditions. Can we call it that? It is. And under very breaking conditions. This is uh, a long-ass indictment of former President Donald Trump. It's 45 pages. And there are no short descriptions of what led up to January 6th. And uh, this is an extraordinarily detailed one. I I think the main big picture thing to say about this indictment is that the indictment is for trying to steal the election. The wrongdoing described in here is the core of the wrongdoing of the events that that took place between election night and January 6th of 2021, closely related to the matters that the the former president was impeached for. Um, We had talked about the possibility there would be an indictment for things like campaign finance violations, and that's not in here. There are four counts here, but all of this is basically the former president the then current president and various people around him conspired in an effort to 
falsify the results of an election, to overturn an election result, and to steal the office of the presidency for himself. Right. And, and we, were, we were talking about this uh, anticipated indictment for some time now. We've been focused very much on little bits of it and imagining an indictment that might go after small, specific acts as separate crimes. But that's not what Jack Smith, the special counsel, did here. Uh, he absolutely went all in. He swung for the fences. He, he looked at the whole course of conduct from the night of the election through January 6th as a piece, as a series of acts that were a conspiracy to violate various laws. He didn't break it down into one crime for this call and a different crime for that email or anything like that. This is, this is telling the entire story. Is that a sound legal approach? I mean, I think, you know, people think of the idea of there are political questions with political remedies and legal questions with legal remedies. Is Jack Smith right that this whole thing adds up not just to, to a political offense, not just to something that you might impeach a president over? Is he right to say this thing is just a, a criminal offense? Well, it's my job to evade clear answers, Josh, and let me do so just a little bit. It's not a bank robbery. It's not like we have precedent on how you go about describing this thing in an indictment. Uh, this is historically unprecedented. That said, I think the answer is yes. I think that this is the most effective way in terms of presenting it to a jury and telling the story. I think it's the most effective way in presenting it to the public of the United States of America to sell them that these are crimes and this this was a series of criminal conspiracies. And I think that a lot of work has gone into it to make it as legally plausible as it can possibly be. Now, there's no certainties here. Uh, we don't know the way courts are going to handle it uh, all the way up to the Supreme Court. But he has done everything he can very carefully to focus on things that in any other context would be crimes and to make mm -hmm. the most effective case possible for why it should be treated like a crime here. Because, I mean, there's a general, I think, preference in the courts to give a lot of deference to elected officials about how they discharge their duties and their and their offices. And it's not directly related to this, but there's a there's a line of recent Supreme Court cases that had to do with public corruption, um, where you had claims that elected officials were misusing their offices in corrupt ways. And those courts, those the these convictions keep getting overturned at the Supreme Court, basically saying that, you know, this is just politics. When Bob McDonnell made these calls on behalf of this guy who was, you know, he had these financial dealings with that there was no explicit quid pro quo and that we're not going to second guess the way that the governor uh, executed his office and made these decisions about what to do with the powers of his office. Does this not get caught up in that, you know, perhaps at an appellate level where the courts where you could have a court basically saying, well, you know, the jury found whatever it found about the facts of what Donald Trump did, but that these were really political acts and that they were really beyond the reach of prosecutors? Josh, I think that's a risk in the courts of appeal in the Supreme Court. But I think Jack Smith has done what can be done to avoid that risk. Most of the cases that you are talking about are using uh, the mail and wire fraud statutes under something called theft of honest services fraud theory. Uh, so it's, it's taking statutes that are traditionally used to swindle people out of money and use it to try to describe political wrongdoing. This takes a very different approach. Uh, the charges here, and, and I think we have to dive into it a little bit to answer that question, are 
a conspiracy to defraud the United States, which is 18 U.S.C. 371, uh, a conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, that's 18 U.S.C. 1512, obstruction of an official proceeding, and we're talking about you know, the, the tabulation and certification of votes here, again, 1512, and a conspiracy against rights, 18 U.S.C. 241, basically a theory that, that these people were conspiring to dilute the votes of every other American by trying to eliminate them through fraud. So these are very different theories than the mail and wire fraud theories that have been stretched and broadened to try to encompass political corruption. This is saying basically, you know, this was a legitimate proceeding where the United States Senate tabulates and certifies votes and you went out and got into this elaborate conspiracy with different means to try to defraud and obstruct that proceeding. And to take that that last charge, the one about conspiracy against rights, I mean, some of the examples that, that you've pulled before we tape this episode that you have in our notes here have to do essentially with stuffing ballot boxes. And that, you know, this statute has been used against officials who cheated in elections by placing fraudulent votes in ballot boxes, by casting voters' ballots for them without their knowledge, by casting votes on behalf of dead people, et cetera. And so is the theory here that basically that this is just a more elaborate way of trying to stuff the ballot box, that rather than putting, you know, a bunch of literal ballots in a box in Chicago, what you are doing is you are bringing false elector slates to the U.S. Congress in order to produce a false election result, and it is, it is as though you stuffed a ballot box? Absolutely. And, and I'll admit, I was skeptical of this theory, uh, the, the uh, conspiracy against rights before I did some research on it. I always saw Section 241 as sort of an idea of like, you know, Klansmen out in the road beating up people going to the ballot box, that type of conspiracy against voting rights. But there is a lot of precedent about this. There's a string of cases for generations talking about officials fraudulently altering the course of a vote, whether stuffing ballot boxes or, as you said, you know, uh, getting people to vote a particular way, bribing people, whatever it is, misusing their official power to fix the results of an election. And the concept behind all of this is that doing those things interferes with the rights uh, to vote of every other voter by creating this false result. So it, it is a, based on the law, it is a perfectly plausible theory, even if it is a little unfamiliar to most people. And the records of the United States Department of Justice viewing this as a legitimate approach are very clear and stretch back decades. This is not a new theory or a new thing by Department of Justice. So let's talk some about the specific factual allegations against the former president in here and what it is that they say that he and various co-conspirators did uh, in order to end up committing these offenses, a conspiracy to defraud the U.S., the obstruction of, of the official proceeding, and the conspiracy against rights. And this, you know, this is going to be a fact set that I think listeners are more broadly familiar with already than in some of the other indictments. Again, this is the big stuff in the news. But basically, the idea is that they're only challenging some of the conduct here. Jack Smith says it's perfectly legal if you want to file all the lawsuits you want, alleging that the vote count in various states was wrong, and if it's perfectly legal to request recounts and to obtain them in the states where the state law allows you to have the recount. The illegal acts are start when they start trying to 
get people to hold themselves out as the electors in states where a different elector slate had been certified? Right. And this is something, it's important to note, this is a speaking indictment. This is an evidentiary indictment, whereas not just bare bones, you know, this person violated this law on this date, which you often see in federal cases. This is a 45 pages of explanation of what they did and why it's a crime. And something he does very early on, as you point out, is he sort of visibly assumes the burden uh, for purposes of the law and I think to some extent for history of saying, absolutely, you can do all sorts of things and he did them and they failed. Here's what you can't do. And the sort of thing you can't do here is to try to falsify the information that gets to the Senate, try to induce others to create false information and send it to the Senate and try to influence officials to do things that you know and they know are illegal. And that's what it's talking about here. So big picture, the things that they're accused of doing are engaging in this conspiracy to um, influence officials from Mike Pence to the Department of Justice to other people to claim that there's fraud when they know there's not, uh, to create these false panels of electors to pose as genuine electors and present themselves or their votes to the Senate for those to be considered instead of the the genuine votes, and to create all this buzz about election fraud, to make all these statements they know are false in order to get states to get in on the game. So they're really careful, you'll see here, Josh, to separate out factually false statements. It reminds me a little bit of what we talk about, about how opinions and rhetoric and hyperbole can't be defamation, right? You Mm -hmm. have to have a provably false statement of fact. So the prosecutors here go out of their way to select out factual allegations that are falsifiable, that can be proven true or false, like 10,000 dead people voted or 30,000 Uh, people who aren't citizens voted, or these voting machines changed votes from Trump to Biden. These aren't just opinions. They're not calling out people saying things like, you know, um, remote voting and mail-in voting is inherently unreliable, and we think they produced false results. It's It's legitimate to think they did. These are talking about specific false statements of fact, things that they are told are not true, but they keep saying are true to try to disrupt the election counting. You said a few times in there about things that they know to be false, and they allege, uh, Jack Smith and and his team allege several times in this indictment that Donald Trump said things that he knew were false. Will they have to prove in court what Donald Trump knew or didn't know? They'll They'll have to prove that he knew he was lying about the election? Yes, I think to succeed on this theory, uh, to show that he had fraudulent intent for the first count on defrauding the United States, and to show that he had corrupt intent from the obstruction charges, I think they do have to show that. And yes, it's a, a heavy burden, which has been, I think, one of the themes of our show and our prior show for the last five years. But this kind of shows how they can do it. So sooner or later, when you lay it out like this, how person after person after person told him, no, that's not right, that didn't happen, there's no evidence of that, the evidence is to the contrary, a jury's going to understand on some level that he knew what he was saying was not right and he didn't care. The other thing he does here is he picks up key quotes from Trump, 
and from the co-conspirators. And, and this this absolutely reminded me of The Wire, you know, saying, are, are you taking notes on a fucking criminal conspiracy? Mm-hmm. They took notes on a criminal conspiracy. They did what you're not supposed to do. And they put things in writing and they said things to witnesses. And so you have Trump saying things like, you know, someone will tell him, that's not right. I can send you the link showing it's not right. Him saying, I don't care. I don't need the link. You have people saying to people in the states uh, while they're trying to persuade them to engage in this, you know, all we need is for people to come up with these votes. It doesn't matter if they're fake. We just need them to use them to get someone to vote to delay the vote counting. It's worth noting that some of the other people who have been involved in these efforts have already been indicted. I mean, particularly in in Michigan, we've seen fake electors indicted and now a couple of officials who were involved in in trying to certify that fake elector slate. So the theory here that, you know, this this effort to get the Senate to do the wrong thing here was a crime. Uh, Jack Smith is not the only prosecutor pursuing that theory. He's not. And uh, what this indictment calls out is that these conspirators kind of screwed over those fake electors uh, because it says that the co-conspirators told them, you know, we're only going to submit you as a panel of fake electors to the extent the court agrees and throws this out and then broke that and did it anyway. Mm -hmm. At At least they made that representation to some of the fake electors. Right. But there's no honor among thieves. Very often when we talk about knowledge of falsity, we're we're talking about defamation cases involving public figures. And you have the actual malice standard there, where to be liable for defamation, you have to know what you're saying is false, or you have to be speaking with reckless disregard for the truth. Is there a similar standard here? Is it sufficient to show that Donald Trump spoke with reckless disregard for the truth, or they have to actually show that he knew that what he knew it was false. Well, it's not exactly the same because the questions are different. The questions are whether the prosecution can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he um, had corrupt intent when he was doing these things. Okay, that's the standard for the obstruction. So, if to get there, the jury has to decide that he had corrupt, wrongful intent. And probably just thinking that the things he was saying were probably false or not really believing them or not caring could probably suffice for that. Same with the intent to defraud. If you're telling someone that this rock I'm selling you is absolutely gold, you know, then it's probably fraud whether you absolutely know it's not or if you've conducted no inquiry whatsoever and how no have no reason to believe it's gold. Either way, it's probably fraud, right? So the big lift here is not the classic actual malice. The, the big lift here is proving beyond a reasonable doubt uh, fraudulent intent or corrupt intent. But so isn't a likely defense from Trump to be that he sincerely believes all of these claims that he was making, that he really thinks the election's been stolen from him. And, you know, I mean, I I know they point to all these people who told Trump that his claims were absolutely wrong. But one of the the key ongoing facts about Donald Trump as a person is that he believes everyone is arrayed against him in a conspiracy. And very often that conspiracy can even involve the people that he hired to work for him, the people he hired to advise him, the people he said were the absolute best people that he was bringing in. He has a, a track record over and over again of denouncing those people and of saying that they are in fact trying to destroy him. And so, you know, that, you know, that, that your acting attorney general told you that this was wrong. I don't think it's implausible for Trump to say that I didn't believe that guy. I thought that guy was absolutely wrong and was absolutely trying to fight against me. 
And that, you know, the reason that he keeps asking people until someone says yes is that the person that he believes is the person who says yes. The person he believes in this case is Sidney Powell. I mean, since this is a question about his internal state of mind, is that not a valid defense to say he can say my my intent was not corrupt because I sincerely believe that I won this election and that these efforts were were to cause the correct outcomes to be reported from each of these states rather than incorrect outcomes that would otherwise have been reported. Yes. If he, if he can convince a jury that there's reasonable doubt about that, then that could be a valid defense. So uh, this indictment anticipates that and lays out the evidence that a jury could look at to decide that he doesn't sincerely believe that or he doesn't actually care. So, you know, when I was a prosecutor talking about intent and how you prove it, I would tell people that, uh, you know, you prove it the same way you decide whether anyone else is lying. You, you prove it the way you decide whether your teenager is lying. You know, you, you look at, is it common sense? And are they doing other things that suggest they don't really believe what they're saying? You know, it's the same thing here. So Donald Trump is always very helpful to the prosecution on this, and this is no exception. You have this section in here, and this was called out to me by a uh, you know, friend of the show and legal commenter, uh, Mitch Epner, who said there's a line in here where, where Trump says to Mike Pence when he refuses to do this, the problem is you're too honest. So that's not something you say <laughs> if you believe that what you're saying is true. Similarly, Trump does things like he excludes naysayers from meetings. He orchestrates things so that only yes men, yes women will be in the room. Uh, he acts, you know, he, he lies to his own team about what's going on. He says things that contradict what he's been told, even by the people supporting his view of events. Uh, he exaggerates or lies about what he's just been told by somebody else. All these things are things that a jury could look at and believe. Yeah, I, I think there's no doubt he knew that this was bogus. And he's just, it's not so much that he believes it's true. It's that he refuses to accept the result. He refuses to accept a world where this isn't true. A more interesting question, I think, and a more complicated one is raised uh, by an article in Rolling Stone today uh, about reports that Trump is going to try to throw his lawyers under the bus. He's going to go for those few yes men and women, uh, the Sidney Powells, the Rudy Giuliani's, the John Eastman's, and say, well, my lawyers told me that uh, this was all right and this was all legal and that's a defense. So advices of counsel can be a defense to crimes where there's a specific intent requirement. So to the, the obstruction crimes, which require corrupt intent as a form of specific intent, it could be a defense if your lawyers told you this was fine. But you have to show that you told the lawyers all the relevant uh, information and you have to disclose everything they said and you have to show they you followed their advice uh, and did so reasonably. And so when you've got Rudy out here in here basically making admissions uh, like, you know, well, I don't know all the facts on the ground. We have to let the court sort it out, things like that. Uh, that's going to undermine this idea that you reasonably relied on your attorney uh, when it appears that they're all talking about. They all know that this is nonsense. Uh, it is something that is discussed among them. Um, it is politics, but it's politics in the sense of it is a lie that's shared that they have agreed to tell together. So to your point about that, Ken, you know, one uh, instance they talk about here is in Georgia, 
uh, where the Trump had signed a document making certain allegations about what had occurred in Georgia. Uh, and co-conspirator two, which is John Eastman, uh, he uh, who had been advising Trump in that lawsuit, acknowledged in an email uh, that he and Trump had, since signing a previous verification, been made aware that some of the allegations and evidence in there was not accurate, and that signing a new affirmation with that knowledge would not be accurate, um, but that then Trump and Eastman caused the defendant's signed verification to be filed nonetheless. So that would be, I guess that would be an example of them not relying on the advice of counsel, although I don't know that they've shown there that Eastman actually told Trump that, even though he told other people in Trump's orbit. Right. But it definitely helps to demonstrate that the co-conspirators know that it's not true. And and you can draw inferences about what Trump knew or didn't know. And he says that he and Trump had been made aware that it's not true. So that's an admission. And because it's happening in the course of the conspiracy, even though it's a statement by Eastman, it's admissible uh, against Trump. That's a hearsay exception and a statement by a co-conspirator in the course and scope of the conspiracy. Uh, Let me just say that Eastman, I think, comes out of this looking like one of the biggest villains uh, of Mm -hmm. the whole thing. John Eastman comes out looking like a significant villain in American history. In this indictment, uh, he, he looks like someone who drives and promotes fraud on the government. Uh, he, he comes out as someone who who says when someone says, well, if, if we do this, you know, there can be rioting in the streets. And he says, well, sometimes, you know, you need violence. Sometimes violence has to happen to preserve the republic or, or words to that effect. All of these co-conspirators come out looking really historically awful. That was this week's free episode of Serious Trouble. Again, we have about 25 more minutes of this episode going into the role of the Capitol riot in the case the prosecutors are bringing here, the identities of those co-conspirators who are discussed in the indictment and what sort of legal trouble they could face, uh, and then what this trial is likely to actually look like if and when it happens, how long it's going to take to start. Could it be like a three-month trial, a very complicated, star-studded trial? Mike Pence and lots of other witnesses are going to have to be called in this trial. Uh, And then finally, Ken and I talk some about sentencing, which, you know, obviously it's early to talk about sentencing, but uh, it's an interesting question. Uh, The statutes that the former president is being charged under here, I don't know that this is the scenario that lawmakers were really thinking of when they wrote those statutes. And are the guideline sentences likely to be the sort of thing that a judge thinks are sufficient here? So anyway, Ken and I had a really interesting, wide-ranging conversation about all those things. And if you go to SeriousTrouble.show, you can become a paying subscriber for $6 a month or $60 a year and hear that entire conversation. So I hope that you will do that. Thank you.